From InsureTech Ireland, this is InsureTech Radio, episode 36, with Richie Barter, CEO of Altviz. Hello, I'm Connor Sweetman, and welcome to another episode of InsureTech Radio, the podcast that teaches you about how technology is transforming insurance and about the people making it happen. The, the final thing I, I did do was I kind of went around and told a lot of my peers and friends that I was planning to bail out of finance and set up my own company. And, and that was kind of an emotional hedge. So by telling enough people, you know, it was hard to back out of doing it. So <laughs> I think that was quite effective too. This week, my guest is Richie Barter, CEO of Altviz, an intelligent automation platform based in Dublin, London and Cork. We speak about how insurers can utilize intelligent automation in their organizations. We discuss the investment landscape in the wake of COVID-19. But we start off by talking about how Richie got his start in entrepreneurship. Please enjoy. Was entrepreneurship always on the horizon for you? Was always kind of part of your DNA, do you think? Or how did how did you get, what was the first uh, sign of it? I, I don't think I could ever quite put my finger on it. I, I never quite felt um settled in the banking world and and i i always had a, a kind of an itch to scratch doing something else uh, and i would never have labeled myself as a purebred entrepreneur i wasn't you know um, running events in college or trying to hustle kind of uh you know side gigs in school and whatever you know the the the, the very kind of traditional sense of an entrepreneur who's added from day one i i think um in my sense, it's been more a journey of around um, looking for interesting uh, areas to apply technology, um, and that that kind of led me away from from the, the job I was doing in finance. And you know, I kind of had to make a fairly um, you know difficult decision to say, well, look, there's there's a relatively safe career path here in what I'm doing in, in the space I'm in. I'm you know I'm doing well in it, so should I just keep going here? Or should I, you know, take a, a very kind of severe turn in a different direction and, and and take a bit of a risk and see what see what comes from it, and that that you know that risk taking side really appealed to me. Um, so so maybe it's less about being an entrepreneur, more about being, you know, enjoying the the, the risk element of it. And it's been it's been a fascinating journey and not one without a lot of ups and downs over the last eight years or so. Um, and so you know, I, I don't think. Um, Again, as I said, I wouldn't I wouldn't have labelled myself as an entrepreneur, but but I guess maybe that's where I've kind of ended up um, th- through the back door. And uh, was there a particular moment or a catalyst for you that made you uh, take that leap? No, there was. I think there was there was it was a, a series of of observations and and kind of realizations over about an eighteen month period. Um, mm. And I kind of I put it down to three specific things in the end. I I, I, um, I had, as I said, I was doing very well in in the career I was in, but I, I looked around and um, I asked myself, you know, w- was this what I wanted to be doing in fifteen or twenty years' time? And and it kind of wasn't really it. Um, mm. You know, I didn't covet my boss's job. I didn't covet my boss's boss's job. I didn't I didn't really want to chase that path, and I'm, and I wasn't happy to sit still where I was. So. That was a, an important signal for me. The, the, the second was a geographic one. Um, the kind of job I had was was fairly limited to um, sort of the big trading floors um, that were out there, so London, New York, Hong Kong, and and, and I was keen to uh, to try and consider a life where I could potentially run a business from 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 somewhere else and not not be tied to those big urban areas. 
as it's turned out, I haven't moved more than two miles down the road from Canary Wharf over the eight years that I've been doing something else. But uh, you know, maybe that's something to work on uh, in the future. Um, and 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 the third one was, um, you know, I was in an extremely large organization, and I found that um, elements of my day job were spent in steering committees and meetings where it felt like twelve people would show up, and and you know they could meet forever and nothing would ever happen, <laughs> and. Um, I just felt a sense of time was slipping by and I wasn't really achieving what I wanted to achieve. So, um, you know, I think the culmination of those three things, um, that being said, I, I, I took a quite a, um, kind of a, a considered approach to it. So, um, in the 18 months up to, to handing in my notice, I, I took some time and went to a range of, of totally random conferences, um, you know, some tech conferences, um, I think I came to Dublin to one of the early te- early web summits in the RDS and sat in a room with a bunch of people without really knowing what was going on. To be honest with you, I went to some um, some some other types of you know VC conferences and innovation conferences just to get a sense of what was out there. Um, did you find when you went to those types of uh, events that you were able to kind of contribute in a way that kind of felt different to how you how you felt in banking? No, I was very much in listening mode. I was just trying to be mm. a sponge, sit quietly in the corner, not ask any stupid questions, and and just soak up the not necessarily the atmosphere, but the language, um, the, the the way that people communicated to each other, the types of problems they were solving, the way they were starting to solve them, to try and get a feeling for was this was this a tribe that I kind of felt that I wanted to be part of. Um, mm. Certainly, very different to the finance and, and banking conferences I would have gone to, which were very formal, suited and booted, you know, with mm. kind of long treaties on macroeconomics and, and the future outlook from, from you know, from from various formal financial kind of approaches. So, you know, I, I found them I found them very stimulating from that perspective, and 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 it opened up a whole world to me of um, engineering and technology that that I was keen to kind of explore further. So, so it was it provided a good you know impetus. The final thing I, I did do was I kind of went around and told a lot of my peers and friends that I was planning to bail out of finance and set up my own company, and and that was kind of an emotional hedge. So by telling enough people, you know, it was hard to back out of doing it. So <laughs> I think that was quite effective too. I think that approach is actually underrated. I remember I ran uh, the New York City Marathon ten years ago in two thousand and oh Jesus, twelve years ago, two thousand and eight, um, and. I describe it as a New Year's resolution that went terribly wrong because I had told people this in like mid-January that I was going to do this. And by the end of January, 20 other people had said, oh, sure, I'll do that with you. And it just, it just snowballed. Yeah, there's, <laughs> no, there's later, no underestimating there's the, the, the value of positive peer pressure. Um, yeah. and, and I think um, it's certainly, uh, when, when it's channeled in the right direction, it can be a force for good. So, you know, I think, I think some people looked at me and went, are you mad? Um, you know, you're leaving a leaving a very a very well paid, very secure life to to do something completely unknown. But um, I, I, you know, I, I certainly don't regret it if, if that's uh, if that's worth saying. And in doing a bit of prep for this, um, I read that you had done a master's. Was it part time while you were still working, or um, um, or did you do that? Did you step out out of your role and then do the masters? Yeah, so so it's probably worth going back a step. Um, so as you can probably tell, I'm from Cork originally. I, I studied in UCD um, originally, doing a, a degree in commerce in German, um, which which really set me up from from a kind of a business perspective. And I and I added to that by doing a masters in finance at the London School of Economics at the start of my career. So I had a really strong finance and, and accounting type background. 
Um, and I guess through my time on the trading floor, I, I picked up uh, some basic um, coding skills, although I wouldn't even call it coding skills, just the ability to, to grab some data from a database and, and, and run some kind of basic queries over the top of it. Um, and that was kind of handy in terms of answering some specific questions and problems that we, we would have had on the trading floor. Um, and, and as I got closer to, to making this decision, I, I again, I kind of took a, a balanced approach and said, well, look, I'm going to, I'm going to take this risk, um, and leave this career, uh, you know, if in 12 months it's been a disaster and nothing positive has come of it, I, it would be sensible if I was at least on the, on the path to a new piece of, uh, paper or a new, a new qualification that I could point That's to and say, smart. okay, I've, I've, I've used this year or this two years away from a day job to, you know, to educate myself in this new field. Um, and I've also tried to start a company and, and you can, you can spin that story one of two ways. You can say I was studying and I tried to start a company on the side or I started a company and did, did a bit of studying on the side. So it gave me a bit of a hedge. Um, if I was going to go back to an employer and, you know, skint and, and looking to get back into the workforce. As it turned out, um, the company has you know, gone pretty well. And, um, yeah, I, I, I studied part-time um, a master's in software engineering um, in, in Oxford um, as a part-time course, which was sort of a real, um, a real grounding for me in, in the basics and, and, and the detail of, of kind of systems and technology. And I was very keen, if I was going to run a technology business, to be conversant in those topics um, mm. so that I could not necessarily – Sit there and write all the code, but uh, you know, hold reasonable and sensible conversations with people around uh, system design, architecture, you know, cloud, algorithm design, uh, big data techniques, distributed computing, you know, a whole range of topics that I studied over the course of the the, the course. Um, and um, I think it's it was a it was a difficult um, <laughs> difficult task to take on. Uh, certainly, uh, took up a lot of time, but. Um, I'm very glad I did it, and, and uh, yeah, it, it kind of helped me to cement my understanding of what I was trying to achieve. And at that time, what was the idea for AltViz? Is it the same as it is now? No, it's 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 very much evolved. And you know, when when I started the business, I, I didn't have a um, a fixed product idea in my mind. I knew I wanted to be involved in the kind of at the time the, the early stages of the big data movement that was starting to happen um, and and this would have been you know 2012 2013 when people were starting to think about using the data in their organizations um, using some more of the modern tools that are out there to understand what they had and, and to, to 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 run their business better with analytics and so um, you know when when we were still a very very small company, we, we decided to do um, you know a lot of work around very custom visualizations, so telling stories with data, and it's still a lot of algorithmic work. But it's 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 you know, at the time there were some 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 emerging kind of platforms for doing that kind of Tableau and ClickView, um, and Microsoft Business Objects would have been one of the older ones, um, and what we were doing was we, we were licensing a, some, some software we had around, um, you know, how to draw these charts and build these visualizations and then, and then selling those to large corporates for specific niche problems they had. And it, it worked well as a business. I mean, we had customers in the U S and Brazil, um, across the UK and Ireland, but, but it was, it wasn't going to scale to the degree that I thought was, was, um, you know, kind of matched my ambition. Um, yeah, I was just wondering there where, where at that time was um, 
was each of the products, I suppose, customized for each of the clients? So like very, very difficult to scale because they, it wasn't kind of the same, just the same problem being solved in multiple companies. Yeah, so, so it was a form of, of productized consulting, I, I imagine is how you describe mm. it. So we had a product on the yeah. line that we would license and then we would, would could basically, you know, charge for consulting time to configure that and, and deliver it for our customers. Um, mm. and, and I guess there was an upper limit on, on the size of those projects, which was, um, kind of, you know, it meant we probably would have stayed more like a niche visualization agency of which there are some great ones out there that do really, really interesting work. Um, but, but it was, it was not really matching the ambition that I had for what we're trying to do. Um, we, what was great though, is we were talking to some really interesting companies and, and they started to ask us to look at slightly bigger problems, um, starting to think, uh, look at more of the raw data, starting to look more at kind of processing the data as well. And, and then actually starting to drive automated actions from the data. So it was, it, it, it took a little bit of time, but it was a, it was a gradual process of moving away from just being a visualization offering to actually being a full enterprise tech um, solution. And, and that's, um, you know, that's kind of set us on the way to where we are today. And but, so as you came to the end of that two year period of doing the masters and stuff, like, was there ever any question that you'd move on? Was there any kind of, um, uh, conflict there or did you kind of know pretty soon that you'd uh, be able to continue after the two years um i guess there was there, there wasn't so much in my own mind any conflict i was very um i was really enjoying it and i was getting a lot from it i was learning a lot i was frustrated at the scale or the speed of our growth um and i was trying to understand how we could accelerate that growth um and I guess that's, you know, a little bit further down the track, we started to explore funding opportunities to, to really try and grow the business a bit faster. Um, I think there was never any point where I seriously considered, I, there was definitely some input from my parents asking me what, <laughs> what was I doing blowing all my savings and when was I going to get back to, to a sensible job and, and, uh, you know, stop, stop messing around. I mean, they, they've been very supportive, but there were certainly a few conversations where they were concerned about, um, you know, how committed financially I was to this, particularly when I was kind of funding the, the whole business for a while, um, out of my bank account, you know, bootstrapping. Mm. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the big change turning point for us was really when we, we landed eBay as a customer and that, that was back in 2015. Really? Um, and, and it was, you know, it was fantastic. I, I was asked to speak at a, an event in, um, I think it was UCL or Imperial around, um, you know, new, new PhDs who were interested in exploring this, this emerging world of data science and, and trying to give some advice from, from a startup kind of perspective as to what that might look like. And, and at that time, we, we already had a data scientist in our team. We were, we were doing interesting work, um, you know, around some of the automation problems that, that we look at these days. And uh, so I spoke on this panel and then you know, there was a gentleman from eBay on the same panel and we spoke afterwards and, and that turned into a, you know, a relationship with eBay that, that continues to this day. Um, and they've been a, an amazing supporter of ours and, and they're, a, they're a very, very brilliant company to work with as a, as, a, as a customer. Brilliant. So I was hoping we could get chatting about some of your, um, uh, some of the, the technology that you, use, that you use and how you apply it to insurance. Uh, so I love your, your tagline is intelligent automation simplified. So I'd love to, to, if we can just get into some de definitions there, like what is very simple stuff? What is automation? What is intelligent of automation? Um, and maybe let's just dive in from there and see where we go. Yeah, that's fine. So I think anyone who's working in a large insurer who's listening to your podcast, there's no doubt there are tasks and processes that they have to do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis where 
they they aren't as efficient they aren't as as achievable as they should be they slow everyone down they they slow down the organization and they can affect all sorts of things and so what what we try to do as an organization is is use our technology to help people to automate and scale those complex business processes um and it's it's a um it's it's an area that we've seen tremendous growth across organizations in recent years um there are different types of technologies that can do different things. The analogy I always like to, to use is, um, if you think about it, that there's there's software out there that can replicate what your hands do, and that's called robotic process automation. And that's doing like tasks that you'd normally use your with your mouse. So grabbing a file out of somewhere, copying some data into somewhere else, and saving it. And doing that over and over again, and, and 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 that's you know that's a whole area in itself. So so Orpia when you said is, that first, I was initially thinking of when you said do what your hands do. I was thinking about literal uh, um, manual work. <laughs> I imagined a, a hammer and a screwdriver, but then uh, yeah, you forget about the fine motor mo- movement that's involved in typing and using using your mouse. And yeah, stuff like that. and and often what you're doing there is is you're you're sticking you're moving data from one context and putting it in another context. So you're taking data from your inbox and you're putting it in a spreadsheet or you're taking in data from a spreadsheet and you're putting it in a, you know, an, a, an accounting system. And, yeah. um, you know, there, there are some technologies out there that have, that have emerged to try and, and, and take care of those pretty basic tasks. I think, you know, that's, that's been a big area. It's called robotic process automation and it's, it's been really effective. It does a great job for that simple stuff. I think where the world is going is um, towards more complex process automation. And that's where you're trying to capture a few more of your senses. So, um, you know, your eyes, so replicating what you can see on screen, there's, um, there's a fairly well-established work around optical character recognition. You know, it's, it's how, it's how the post office works. It reads a, an address line using optical character recognition and decides where a letter needs to go. Um, and, uh, you know, bringing that into process automation is, is, is another area. Um, you've got voice to text. So that's the ability to replicate what someone does with their ears. Um, so listening to a voice recording from, and, and, and learning something from it and then taking an action. Um, then the bit where the machine learning and the AI comes in, that's trying to replicate the decision-making process. Some people say the brain, but it's, it's not as complicated as that, to be honest. It's, it's trying to take semi-structured or unstructured data and, and provide a brain. And where we come in is, is if you imagine the nervous system holding all of that together, we provide that platform that sits underneath all of those different tasks uh, and those different processes and, and, and orchestrates the whole thing. And so, you know, that, that's not my analogy. That's one we've borrowed from, from the research uh, world. But it's a really helpful one, I think, in terms of, of trying to think about all of these different elements. And, and when you pull all of that together, you, you're in what, what's being called intelligent automation. Um, and so maybe, maybe it would help if I gave you some practical examples. Um, sure. One of the things you'll see is, is um, there are pools of data sitting in organizations that are either not used because they're too hard to access or they aren't structured in a way that makes them easy to do anything with. Um, and, and I'll That's go. What I was just thinking about, I was just thinking about an, an inbox. Like how do you get data out of your inbox and actually structure it and clean it and make it actually usable? Yeah. And, and so that's a, that's a, that's a great, good example. And actually extending that, um, you know, the, the amount of, um, you know, customer feedback that people get. So, 
anytime mm. you, you provide yeah. a, a feedback score at the end of a, of a call or at the end of a, an interaction with a, with an insurance company, you know, how was your call today? Can you, you know, give us a score between one to 10 and tell us why you liked it? So the score between one to 10 is easy. That's a number. And you can, you know, we're pretty good at dealing with numbers. Um, but when it's a, it's a verbal description or a written description of, of their experience, then, then, you know, organizations and systems haven't traditionally been very good at kind of classifying and sorting out that data in a way that makes it scalable and understandable. And if you're running a major call center operation for a major insurance company, you might be getting tens or hundreds of thousands of responses to these types of surveys every month. And, you know, the, the amount of time it takes to manually sift through this kind of unstructured data um, is, is, is prohibitive. And what happens is you either sample it, you look for the top 100 results, or you, 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 know, or you don't do anything with it at all, which is even worse when you just look at the, at the scores themselves. So one of the things that intelligent automation can do is say, okay, let's take the 100,000 survey responses you have this month. Let's use natural language processing to, in, you know, to walk through each response and classify each response into a certain type of this is a happy customer, this is an unhappy customer, this is an unhappy customer because their premium was too high, this is an unhappy customer because they spent two hours waiting on the telephone call to speak to someone. And and then blend that in with other data. So let's say, well, let's take all of the claims records or all of the call handling times associated with everything and actually build a picture of what's happening. And then based on that, let's let's put some rules around it and say, okay, anytime a customer who's been with us for over 10 years provides a complaint around the amount of time they've had to wait, they should get an instant callback. And let's trigger that as a task for someone on the outreach team to call that person and say, you've been a long, loyal customer. We hear you've had a bad experience. How can we help? And that's a, a made-up mm-hmm. example. That's another use case that we've been doing, but that's an example of the kind of intelligent automation you can start to put in to, 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 to large volume systems. Um, and, and that's an example of the type of work that, that we spend a lot of time doing. And it seems so. It seems that you're developing technology that re- that really enables uh, various functions in various types of businesses. And I'm wondering, have you used any of the tech or developed any technology for yourselves that you, that enables you guys to to work and do your jobs better? Yeah, I mean, we, we we've we've always been um, a big um, proponent of of automation technologies ourselves. Um, we're a small team, and anything we can do to um, reduce the friction and burden within the organization is 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 um, kind of very valuable to us. I think one of the ways that we use it is is through some of the uh, communications um, software that we use. So we're we're a big user of Slack. Um, oh, other companies have Microsoft Teams, but but Slack is is our preferred choice. And and most of our software systems are hooked into Slack and will tell us. Anytime someone downloads a, a white paper from our website, we, we get a notification. Anytime um, one of our you know customers' uh, software has an event, that will come through. Um, and, and all of these notifications allow us to take actions um, as a team without having to search for them or do a lot of analytics or a lot of you know metrics monitoring. So we're we're trying to live uh, very much in the same vein as what we're trying to help our customers to do as well. Um, and and it's it's something that we're we're very keen to do. Um, one of the things that we're hoping to get more time to do in, in the coming years is, is, is look more at our finance processes and, and um, automate more of the, of the ins and outs around that. It's something we're already doing for some very, very big customers. Unfortunately, we've been so overwhelmed with, uh, with customer work and, and product work that uh, we, we haven't been able to, to, to maybe prioritize some of that stuff as much as I'd like. But, but it's definitely uh, you know, an area that every business can find opportunities to, to increase their automation. 
No, it's, it's a great thing to be able to say that you're overwhelmed by uh, customer work. It, it, has there been a, a specific uh, customer or specific hire or a specific uh, uh, driver of that? I think there's a couple of things that have played into it in the last um, sort of 12 months, two years. Um, definitely the work that the robotic process organizations have done Um has really helped. So it's, it's, it's helped large organizations to, to think about what's possible with automation. They've, mm. they've seen all of the simpler tasks that they, you know, they've automated as many of those as they can. They're now looking at more of the complex tasks that they have and the complex processes and saying, okay, well, 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 you know, we, we don't have necessarily the tools here to, to, to solve that problem, but where could we find those tools? And, and they're, they're sort of showing up at our door. Um, that that's one thing that's definitely driving it. I think another thing is that um, some of the technologies that underpin this are maturing nicely. So um, the big move for a lot of organizations to the cloud is opening mm. up the ability to to do the kind of data processing and the and the automation processing that's required here um, in a very effective manner. The third is the maturing of of data science teams and data science capabilities. Um, so that there's been a real push around that area in terms of helping data science teams to develop their models faster and more effectively. I would still say there's a gap around operationalizing those models and the ability to say, okay, um, you know, there's a, a bunch of PhDs sitting in a corner who are working hard to build a, a very, you know, impressive voice to text uh, model for, for a given insurer. But getting that into a production scale that can handle 100,000 calls a month is um is difficult and and sort of our platform can facilitate that really well and and it's something where we're seeing a lot, a lot of traction um with our customers um and so you know it's not just one thing it's a combination of things um i'm also you know as as a management team and as a, as a founder we're we're driving the business as hard as we can we see a huge opportunity for what we're doing um you know, the, the numbers thrown around in terms of potential for this market are, are enormous in, in the billions and billions of, of uh, automation potential. And um, we, we see a real opportunity for ourselves to be one of the core technology platforms that underpins that. Um, and, and, you know, although this is an insurance-focused podcast, you know, we, we, we work in a range of different industries, um, which is played to our benefit at the moment, particularly with uh, the challenges of COVID. You know, we, we were able to kind of explore automation use cases in lots of different arenas, which um, is kind of runs orthogonal to a lot of the, you know, focus on one industry, focus on one use case, kind of SaaS approach that a lot of the the, the market seems to be taking. And just on COVID, um, I'm, I'm curious as to the, the types of conversations you've been having, like with employees, customers, uh, and particularly investors. How have your investors been and how have you, how have those conversations gone? I think our investors have been very supportive. Um, we, we have a, a great group who, who help us out um, in many different ways from advice and coaching for me. Um, you know, I, I still consider myself very much a CEO in training, although I'm eight years in. Uh, there are, there's always areas I can be better in, and I'm lucky in that a lot of our investors have you know, deep experience in scaling and, and kind of growing companies and I, and I, I lean on them for that. Um, I think there's been some good advice in, as we scale. Um, We've actually kind of positioned ourselves. So, so we haven't furloughed anybody in the company. We've been kind of full pedal to the metal in the last couple of months. Uh, we may even be starting to hire again in June. Um, Great. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really exciting. Um, the, the, um, and the, the word from our investors has been, you know, it's kind of twofold. 
One is that they're encouraged to see that we're still closing deals at the moment, which I think is is quite unique um, in 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 the in the space. It seems to be um, other founders I've talked to have seen a big a big fall off in their in their B two B sales. Um, the second is that um, you know automation is potentially an outcome of this crisis. Um, you know, as organizations move to remote working and, and, and look at their operations in, in quieter times, they'll no doubt identify use cases where they say, okay, there's a, there's a use case here where if we could actually automate this process or that process, we'd actually free up this, this headcount here to do these other tasks in a better way um, uh, and to think more strategically and be less, you know, tactically tied up. Um, and um, you know we're, we're beginning to see that with, with with a lot of our customers and with our new potential customers, where they're coming to us with with opportunities that have emerged from 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 this this crisis. Um, so I think it's it's a it's an interesting time um, in terms of the 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 impact longer term. I think there's definitely going to be a wobbly period, probably over the late late rest of this quarter and in through Q3. Um, as governments start to pull back uh, from the stimulus that they've provided across Europe and and the rest of the world, how that plays through into um, uh, the the corporates and the and the economic demand, um, you know, I think companies that have been able to rely on stimulus from governments or or you know furloughing of employees to to prevent headcount reduction, um, you know, may may have to make some difficult decisions, and you'll see. Um, you know, there's been, you know, I think today and yesterday, Airbnb and Uber are, are shedding staff. Uh, you know, oil prices have affected, um, you know, the dividends of some major companies. You know, the mm. share price guidance is, you know, companies aren't, you know, listed companies with, with large forecasting teams aren't forecasting far into the future in terms of performance. Um, and these are all examples of uncertainty uh, coming into the market. And I think, um, you know, it's still early to see how that plays out and into 2021. I think some of the uh, investors and the VCs I've been speaking to about how the rest of this year looks, I think um, a lot of um, VCs will, will sit back a little bit. I think it's a really interesting proving point for a company you know, or companies to see, yeah. okay, how did you get on through the crisis? Were you able to navigate it in an efficient way? Did you have to take dramatic action um, to, to you know, save or support your business? Or um, were you able to, to, to hunker down and, and even come out of it in a positive way? And I think, you know, late Q4 and into Q1 next year, um, 2021, we'll, we'll see some of the capital that's still available in the market but, but hasn't been maybe deployed come back into play. Um, I think with the angel investors, it's slightly different. Um, I think there's probably some opportunistic investment going on, although probably nowhere near the same scale as it was, uh, particularly here in the UK, uh, where, where the majority of our investors are based. Um, I would say that you know the ticket sizes will probably be lower, and and you know there may be an impact on valuation. But um, I, I think we you know we've seen this stuff before in 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 the private markets, and um, I'm hoping that it just means that better companies will get funded properly, um, and and more of the froth that maybe have been was there before will 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 not be you know around as much. Great. I think that's a really good place to end. Quite a positive and a nice, uh, nice overview of um, of where we're at. Um, do you have any parting words for our audience? So I think it's a really interesting time in in the insurance sector. Um, in, you know, irrespective of which area you're in, I think there's going to be challenges around claims for business continuity and and you know at the Lloyd's market and, and areas like that. 
uh, I think, uh, but I think this is a really good time to to take a you know a look at your operations and, and look at automation opportunities and how that can benefit you going forward. Um, and and I you know we continue to be engaged actively with the Irish insurance market. We have conversations with a, a range of the big insurers here um, and in the UK. And uh, and I'm you know I'm really excited to see how the, those those companies are going to evolve and take advantage of these emerging technologies over the next uh, you know three to five years. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on LinkedIn. And please visit our website, insuretechireland.org. See you next week.